Please turn to Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14. And the guys have Bibles. Aaron and Jean and Larry have some, so get their attention as they make their way back. If you need a copy of the scriptures to follow along, it's marked to Proverbs 14. As you're turning there, I have a note from our brother Ken Rapp and his sister, Carolyn Osborne. And most of you know that they lost uh, their brother this uh, past week, Mike, who lives in Arizona. And they say, Ken and Carolyn wish to thank our church family and express our gratitude for all the prayers, cards, email messages, and Facebook notes following the loss of our brother, Mike. We're comforted in knowing that Mike was saved and is with the Lord today. We're grateful and blessed to have such a supportive and caring church family. In his love, Ken and Carolyn. Thank you all for upholding this family at this time. Most of you know that I had the privilege of being raised in a Christian home. My dad and my mom were committed followers of Jesus. Being born into a family like that is very different. Few people even have one parent who's a follower of the Lord, much less two. So it's a different circumstance. But of course, as you think about the word different, that can be positive or it can be negative. Depends on how you look at it. Negatively, being different can just mean you're weird. We all know committed people who have mistakenly come to believe that weirdness is next to godliness. And so many of our Amish friends would be examples of this. And so, but the truth is that different for the Christian can and should be viewed as positive. We should indeed be different from the crowd, and we should view it not as something to be ashamed of, but as an indication of having been blessed by God. That is, we should live a different life from that of the surrounding culture, and we should see that life as a preferable life, a desirable life, a better life. And I learned early on that we were different, our family was different, but in a positive way. At several points, I remember saying or thinking to myself, what we do is better. What our family does is preferable. I, as a boy, came to see the difference between our family that worshipped and revered and regarded God in all that we did as not only different, but better. Positively so. I noticed that our family talked differently. We invoked God about all sorts of things that would be happening in our, our family. And there were certain things that I was taught you just can't say because they're not becoming of one who's a follower of Jesus. And so, when I would play with my neighborhood friends, and we played all the time. Every season had a sport, and we played it all day. And if it was school, then after school we played it until it got dark. And so it was street hockey, and it was football, and it was baseball, and it was basketball. And I loved that, and my parents made sure that I had sports equipment to do that. We were fairly poor, but we always had baseball bats and gloves and all kinds of stuff. 
And I would bring all of this equipment to play with these friends, and some of them would want to use it, but there was one condition. You have to talk a particular way when you use my stuff. And I enforced that rule for years as, as a kid. And I noticed that my mom, unlike many of the other moms in the neighborhood, my mom was content in who she was. And that contentment was evidenced in how she dressed, and in how she talked, and in how she carried herself. It was clear to me that many of my friends' moms wanted to still be teenagers. My mom was happy to be who she was. My parents' values were different from my friends' parents. As I said, I played sports, but my parents were not at every game. They may not have even been at most games. But the reason is because that was not their life. It was clear to me, even as a young person, that it was the case, that it was their life for so many other families. Many of my friends' dads were reliving their youth through their sons. And it was pitiful to me even then as a kid. There was this frequent refrain in my mind and sometimes in my words, what we do is better. And I grew up thinking that my family's biblical convictions and the resulting lifestyle and choices were better. We had less money than almost all of my friends. But I always felt like we had more than they did. As I grew up, that stayed with me. As a teen, I remember going with some friends at my first job to a pool hall. It had all the trappings of a bar. Now you say, how did you know what a bar, what bar trappings were? Well, the truth is, I had to go to the bar more times than I care to recount to pick up an older brother who saw our family's difference as weird rather than a blessing. And as a result, imbibed from the culture and its scene. And I remember being in this pool hall filled with young people, and it struck me as being simply a bar without alcohol. All the same stuff was going on. In particular, folks looking to hook up with someone. And I remember thinking, this is not for me. These girls are not for me. This is not the place for me, and these are not the people for me. And when I graduated from high school, a Christian high school, the summer after we graduated, one of my classmates showed up at my house and asked if I wanted to go to the bar. It turns out that he too had seen this difference that had been modeled before us and we were encouraged to pursue, but he saw it as weird, not better or blessed. I declined. And then ditto in college. Everybody, it seemed, was pursuing a different life from mine, and I still believed that mine was better. Even in class, as I took courses in biology and I heard crazy talk about our origins, and in philosophy as debates were waged about whether the chairs we were sitting in actually existed, and I would debate those matters with students and teachers, and I came to realize that indeed for all of the sophisticated jargon, they really did not have a clue. 
to see before my eyes and to hear in my ears the reality of what Scripture tells us. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. As I looked for a soulmate with whom to share my life and pursue this way to which God calls us, I needed to find someone who believed and lived like my family did. Well, what are the chances of that? But you know, God can move the chess pieces around. And God brought Kim to me. Someone who believed precisely as I had been taught. That God's way, which we are blessed to know as our way, because of Him, that that way is better. That that way is far better. We hadn't been married very long. And there was a staff party at one of the early jobs that I had. And it was filled with all the stuff that staff parties are filled with. And all the talk that staff parties are filled with. And Kim and I still talk about how we were such fish out of water. We believed then and we believe now. God's way is better. Psalmist said in Psalm 84 and verse 10, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Now when we talk, when I talk better, our way, because it's God's way, is better or superior. When you talk like that, we're in danger of being arrogant. And I understand that, I do. It's the antithesis of Christianity to be arrogant at all. Please understand, friends, I am fully aware. And we need to be fully aware that but for the grace of God, so go we. And so we thank God for His grace in showing us a better way. The way of the world is not the way of the follower of Christ. And I had to turn to Proverbs 14. Because in verse 12, it says this. There is a way that seems right to a man. And you notice the second part of that verse. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. And so the reason that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, that you will be in the minority at all times, is because there is a way, not God's way, there's a way that seems right to people, and they follow it, and they follow it then to its logical end, and it is all around you. It is what the Bible calls the world. It is the culture in which we live. So at some point... Whether as a child, in my case, or later in life, we have to come to the realization that God's way is better than anything that the world offers. And we have to, friends, cease to long for the world's riches and its prestige and its pleasure. And we have to bask, we have to glory in the knowledge that we know the truth and we know the God of truth and that we are known by this God. And we are held in His fatherly hand. You see, this way, not the way that seems right to a man, this way 
is spoken of by Jesus in John 14, 6. You all remember? I am the way. Proverbs warns, the way that seems right to a man, the way of the transgressor, the way of the one who does not follow the way of wisdom given to us by God our Creator. The way of the transgressor is hard. And so important is this matter of contrasting the way of the world with the way of wisdom that the book of Proverbs highlights the difference between the world's values on the one hand and God's on the other. We're going to see several of those contrasts this morning. Let me say before we do, you know when it is best to recognize that God's way is better? When's the best time to recognize that? It's when you're young. That's why the Solomon who wrote most of the Proverbs told us in the book of Ecclesiastes. He said to serve your creator in the days of your youth while you are young. So you do not have to experience the difficult way of the transgressor. And so particularly to our young people, to our teenagers, and to our young adults, but of course to all of us, but especially to you, understand that the time is now to recognize that the way you are being taught, what is being modeled before you, is better, far better than anything the world can ever offer. The book of Proverbs itself actually addresses itself to young people. In the opening chapters of Proverbs, you'll find the phrase, my son. Listen to my words. My son, my daughter, listen to me. Because I can teach you a better way. In Solomon's case, I can teach you a better way because I've experienced the wrong way. I often remind our girls how blessed they are to live in a home with two followers of Jesus. Imperfect to be sure, Sinful to be sure, but followers of Jesus who have been taught and seek to pursue the better way. You see, that's the good life. That's the really good life. Not what the world tells you. And so the book of Proverbs is going to contrast several things that the world presents as the way with the better life. Let's ask God to help us as we look together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your way. Thank you, Lord God, for caring for us to the extent that you have not left us in the dark with regard to the path that you have for us. Your word is a lamp to our feet and it's a light to our path. It tells us the way to go. It tells us that you are the way. <clears throat> and it shows us how following you should translate into our everyday lives. We thank you for that grace given to us in your word. We thank you for the grace given to us in allowing us to be here now to hear from your word. Help us, Lord, to be clear. Help us to be attentive. Help us to be open so that we can follow you better in the way. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I have an outline for you that's inserted in your program as we do every week. I encourage you to take a look at that. 
We want to see from several proverbs where this word better or more than is used. How God's way is contrasted with the way of the world. And I say in the take-home truth, we're going to see that God's way is always better. God's way provides, I say, first, better possessions. And then we have five things listed there, A through E. God's way provides better possessions. Now, if you look at some of those, you see things like wisdom, and you see humility and righteousness and so on. So what does that have to do with possessions? Well, interestingly, all five of them, as we are going to see, are contrasted with wealth. These things are all better than wealth. And so that's why I say God's way provides better possessions. It's better to possess wisdom than it is wealth. It's better than to possess humility than wealth. And love than wealth and righteousness and so on. So in Proverbs chapter 3, we're going to look at a number of Proverbs together. So you'll be flipping around a bit. But look at Proverbs 3. Verses 13 and 14. Blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding. For she, wisdom, is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. Wisdom is better than wealth. If you look at chapter 8 in verse 11. Wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Now that word, more precious, is the same Hebrew word that's normally translated better. And so wisdom is better than than rubies. Chapter 8 and verse 19. Just look down at verse 19. My fruit is better than fine gold. Now, whose fruit? My fruit. Well, if you look back up in verse 12, who begins to speak here? It's wisdom. And so when it says, my fruit, it's wisdom's fruit. Wisdom's fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. And then lastly, for this particular point, if you look at chapter 16 and verse 16, 1616. How much better to get wisdom than gold, to choose understanding rather than silver. And so over and over, the book of Proverbs is telling us God's way is better. God gives us better possessions. Wisdom is better than wealth. And if we pursue this wisdom that is better than wealth, we will be pursuing none other than Jesus Christ because the Bible tells us that Christ is the wisdom of God. The Bible tells us that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. And so if you want to see what wisdom looks like, personified, lived out, then look at the life of Jesus. And notice what Jesus says over and over in his earthly ministry as you read the Gospels about earthly riches and wealth. He almost never has anything good to say about it. As a matter of fact, the Bible as a whole 
doesn't say a whole lot good about it. It says some things. But there are dire warnings with regard to wealth and with regard to riches and the way they can grip the heart of a man or a woman. Do you all remember this episode in Jesus' earthly ministry where he visited his friends in a town called Bethany and while Martha was preparing the, the meal, uh, Mary brought a expensive perfume. The Bible tells us that that perfume cost a year's wages. So if an average salary is 40000 or $50,000, then you got a, a jar of perfume worth forty or $50,000, a year's wages. And this woman takes and breaks this expensive perfume to lavish it upon Jesus. Here's what the Bible says. At dinner, at a dinner given in Jesus' honor, Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet. She wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But I want you to notice who objects the loudest. There were several objections. This episode is in all four of the Gospels. There were several objections, but the loudest and the only one who was picked out by name. But Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. But John goes on to comment for us. He did not say this because he cared about the poor. But because he was a thief, as a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Whatever else was going on in Judas's dark heart, as he despised Jesus, this waste of money was the last straw for him. <laughs> waste money? Are you kidding me? On God? We know it was the last straw because each of these accounts, after Judas does this, he goes and he speaks with the chief priests to conspire for the life of Jesus. He has now gone too far. He is now using money to lavish upon himself. See, Judas was like so many of us. He expected others to be controlled by money because he was. And they absolutely hate it when others do not follow suit. And so they see people who really don't care that much about it. Now again, I'm not talking about being profligate in the use of your money. The Bible has much to say about that. In fact, next week we're going to look at what Proverbs says about the wise use of finances. But I am saying that we do not care about money as a means for us to pursue our own agenda. Rather, we are wise with the use of our money so that we can use it for ministry purposes. That's why Jesus warned, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Apostle Paul warned in a lengthy passage that I'm going to put on the screen for you. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing. We can take nothing. 
But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now he gives that warning, and I want you to notice the contrast, strong contrast. That's the way the world looks at it. That's what the world does. If you fit into this kind of mentality, friends, you are thinking in a worldly fashion. But then Paul goes on and says this, but you, in contrast to that, you, man of God, this is how you behave. You flee from all of that. And you pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and endurance and gentleness. And Timothy, I, Paul, write to you, command those who are rich in this present world. Now, you read that, command those who are rich in this present world, and you say to yourself, I'm off the hook. Because I'm not rich. But in biblical terms, every person here is rich. Monetarily rich. Materially rich. How do I know this? If you had any money at all to spend in a discretionary way this week, you're rich. Do you see most people in the world don't have any discretionary income at all? It is simply to eke out a living. And that's the way it was for most people in biblical times. Every one of us here lives in the wealthiest nation in a difficult time, though it is the wealthiest nation the world has ever known. If we have discretionary income, we fit this category. So now read that. Command those who are rich. That is, command Ken. Command fill in your name. Not to be arrogant. Not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good. To be rich in good deeds. To be generous willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Judas was not rich in good deeds, obviously. He did not keep the bag in order to advance the glory of Christ, in order to have, in order to give away. That's what Paul's commanding here, isn't he? You have it in order to be generous with it. It is my experience that those who focus their attention on money are, with few exceptions, stingy toward God. It's so bad that the prophet Haggai had to say to God's people, you live, this is what it says, you live in paneled houses. But my house is in ruin. You're stingy when it comes to God. Not generous when it comes to Him. But you're worried about money all the time. Listen. Making money and the ability to do that is a great thing. But that excess is to be used to advance God's glory in His ministry. I'm thankful for those who do that. I'm thankful for those who we can read about, who have gone to be with the Lord, who have done that. There are some. One such was a fellow named Laterno, R.J. Laterno. Some of you have heard that name. There's a university down in Texas called Laterno University. It's an engineering school. It's because Laterno made his millions by patenting certain kinds of earth-moving equipment. He was a Christian man, and he determined 
that he would live off of 10% and he would give 90% to causes to advance the glory of God. Wisdom is better than wealth. Wisdom is using what God has given us for the purpose for which he gave it. I have secondly in your outline, and I'll move more quickly with the rest of these, you'll be glad to know. But that one is absolutely foundational to the rest, humility. And look at Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 9. Proverbs 12, 9. It's better to be a nobody and yet have a servant than pretend to be somebody and have no food. What this is contrasting is a visible poverty with invisible prosperity. Visible poverty with invisible prosperity. And so this is the person who indeed has, as evidenced by the servant, but doesn't feel the need to brag about it. And so, by reputation, they're a nobody. And so this is addressing the desire that many of us have for vanity or appearance. It's about the person who wants to look successful even though they have to fake it. It's a charade. And so it's the attitude of appearance for appearance's sake. It's undoubtedly a major factor in what's increased astronomically the credit card debt that Americans owe. Keep up appearances for appearances' sake. And so there are people who want to be seen driving the right car with their house fully decorated, always fashionably dressed for each occasion. They seem to have everything that borrowed money can buy. And appearance is everything to them. Proverbs says, better to be of no reputation and not flaunt what it is you do have than to be one who pretends to be somebody and have no food. Chapter 15 and verse 16. 15-16. Better a little fear, a little with the fear of the Lord, than great wealth with turmoil. We're looking at the best life, the better, the better life. It's better to have a little materially, but with the fear of the Lord, than to have great wealth with turmoil. When I was young and I looked at my friends' families who did not follow the way that my family did, I saw that there was turmoil. I saw that for all the stuff they had, there was turmoil amongst their parents. Turmoil between them and their parents. They were miserable on the inside all the while having all the trappings on the outside. They were miserable in heart and they were miserable in home. And yet the one who has the fear of the Lord has the security that comes not through wealth, not through material gain, but security with God because of a relationship with Him. Security in relationships, in, in marriage. Maybe prosperous materially, maybe not, but rich nonetheless. If you look at chapter 15 and verse 17, just the next verse. It says this, better a meal of vegetables where there's love than a fattened calf with hatred. 
far better to live in an environment of love, even if you have nothing else, than to live in a mansion, have multiple cars, possess a luxurious life that's accompanied by strife and hate. And yet that's what you find over and over and over again by those who pursue the way of the world rather than the way of wisdom. And then lastly, under this providing better possessions, is chapter 16, just one chapter over and verse 8. Chapter 16 and verse 8. Better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. Over and over again in the Word of God, particularly in the book of Proverbs, this is better than that. The way that seems right to a man is inferior to the superior way of wisdom. And so, God's way gives better possessions. He gives wisdom. He gives humility. He gives love. He gives righteousness. He gives us all that we need. Humility and reverence. God's way provides better possessions. But I want you to notice as well that it provides better relationships. God's way provides relationships of peace. You're in chapter 16. Look down at verse 32. Better a patient man than a warrior. Better a man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. You see, what it's saying there is this. A person may accomplish the job, but they may do so as a hothead. Knocking over anyone who gets in their way. Stepping on anyone who's on their stairway to success. It's better to have a patient man than a warrior. Someone who can control his passions than the one who takes a city. We don't believe that in America. God believes it, though. Then I have four more, or excuse me, three more for you to look at under this. We look at chapter 21. Chapter 21 and verse 9. Better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Yeah. I said there were three more. One of the three says exactly that same thing. You don't have to turn over. It's in chapter 25 and verse 24. It says exactly that. That's how important that is. It's repeated. Better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. And then look down at verse 19. Chapter 21, verse 19. Better to live in a desert that was a quarrelsome and ill-tempered wife. Now, the men are all saying to themselves, oh, I'm so glad you got to that. But, men, we need to remember, and one of our messages in the book of Proverbs is going to talk about what Proverbs says regarding family relationships. And we need to remember that that quarrelsome wife though responsible before God for her own actions and reactions, is someone like you, like me, like our children, who can also be provoked by our unwillingness to lead as God says to lead. And so we look at that and we say, look, you're being quarrelsome. And they are responsible for that if that's the case. We also, as men who are called to lead in our homes, need to look at ourselves to see, am I providing for my wife what God says I should provide to give her the kind of security that she needs? Not just material security, but security in your decisions and your responsibility overall. 
so she doesn't feel the need to nag you all the time. And so it highlights not just the woman's responsibility, but ours to lead as well. Further, it highlights, it reminds us of the importance of choosing a mate wisely. Many a person has chosen a mate foolishly. They've had contention for the better part of their marriage. Many of those end in disillusion of the marriage. What kind of testimony is it to God Almighty or for God Almighty to an onlooking world when those who profess the name of Jesus do not have peace in their relationships? We're going to tell our children, follow God's better way when what they've seen in their home is nothing but contention and strife? God's way provides better relationships. It provides peace in our relationships for those who have peace with God and thus can have peace with one another. Secondly, it provides authenticity in our relationships. Please take a look at chapter 27 and verse 5. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. I call this authenticity in our relationships because here's what that proverb is telling us. It means I love you enough to do what's hard for your benefit. Open rebuke is better than hidden love. I love you enough to do what is hard for your benefit. That may mean I have to tell you you're wrong. What you're doing is wrong. That may mean I have to say or do some hard things. Parents have to do this with their children. Chapter 13 and verse 24. You don't need to turn there for sake of time. Chapter 13, verse 24. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. And here's the relationship between those open rebuke and willingness to discipline our children. Authenticity in our relationships. When we're unwilling to say or do the hard thing, now get this, it becomes more about us than about them. Because we would rather have the good feeling, now hear this, of being liked rather than the unpleasantness of doing and saying what's best for them. That's why the Word of God says, when you fail to discipline your children, do the hard thing with your children. You're not loving them. You're actually loving yourself. You want them to like you. The reason we won't say what's difficult to a friend is because we don't want to risk them not liking us. Here's this, hear this, friends. We need to love them more than we want them to like us. Whether our children or our friends or our spouses. I've tried to practice this over the years. I learned this a long time ago. You have to say the hard things. You have to do the hard things. And it's hard. It is so unusual. People are like, you came from another planet. Are you kidding me? You can't say that. I remember being in a room with a guy years ago who attended our church but was engaged in a pattern of sinning. And we had to confront him lovingly about that. So I was confronting him about it very directly. Open rebuke is better than hidden love. And I thought I was doing pretty well with it. I thought I was being nice and all of that. 
And I still remember this guy in the midst of this saying, Dude, you've got to throw me a bone. That was his phrase. I said, say what? Throw me a bone, man. Say something nice about me. So many of us adopt an approach that says, give some flattery so that you can also give some hard medicine. And if you can honestly say good things about someone, then do that. That's good. But I'm not going to make things up in order to make you feel better. I'm not just going to throw you a bone in order for you to feel better about the truth. And yet that's the approach that many of us that many of us take. And very often as a result of that, the truth that we're supposed to communicate is obscured. Lastly, God provides better relationships in the form of commitment in those relationships. Chapter 27 and verse 10. Twenty-seven, ten. Do not forsake your friend and the friend of your father. Do not go to your brother's house when disaster strikes you. Better a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. Now that could be taken geographically. Better to have somebody that's close to you than somebody who's, who's far away. But its real intent is relationally. Because the truth is, there are relationships, even family relationships, that will grow apart sometimes because of your stand for the truth. Jesus said this. I have come to divide. I know people, people can't believe this is in the Bible, but Jesus says it. I have come to divide. Because when you stand for the truth, there are times when people will leave you. You're not leaving them, they're leaving you. Standing for Christ may cost you. The person who is committed to another because they love them in their relationship will not leave them, hear this, because the circumstance changes. I see this, I've seen this over the years often. Folks will be very close in a relationship, but then one of them gets married or one of them has a child. The circumstance changes. And then the other party says, you know, it's not like it used to be, quote, you've changed. Well, it's not that they've changed, their situation changed. And the question now is, do I love them only because of the circumstance we had? Or do I love them because of who they are in their new circumstance? Commitment. And then lastly, God's way provides not only better possessions and relationships, but better priorities. We look at chapter 19. And verse 1. These are the last two I'll have you look at. 19 verse 1. Better a poor man whose walk is blameless than a fool whose lips are perverse. And then lastly, chapter 28 and verse 6. 28.6. Same first phrase. Better a poor man whose walk is blameless than... Chapter 19 said, then a fool whose lips are perverse. Notice this one. Bless, a poor, bless better a poor man whose walk is blameless than a rich man whose ways are perverse. The fool and the rich man are parallel. And what this is telling us is this, that God always emphasizes what is inside over what's outside. 
character and integrity over what we have outside. And if you have this kind of integrity that establishes priorities of godliness, it'll influence everything you do, from whether or not you cheat on your taxes to how you treat other people. This is referring to what we are in our character, as one has put it, it's what we are when no one is looking. And better to have that integrity than to have a mouth that runs on, than to have riches. Now I want you to notice the title as we conclude. Notice the title of this message. It's at the top of the screen. It's at the top of your outline. It says, Your Better Life Now. It may remind some of you of a book hawked by one of the TV prosperity preachers called Your Best Life Now. And the book's all about how you can have your best life now, right now. But I say your better life now. Now here's why. If we pursue what the wisdom of God gives us in His Word, particularly in the book of Proverbs, we will have a better life, a superior life to the way of the world. But your best life is still to come. Your best life is not now. It'll be better as compared and contrasted to the world, but my best life is not now, friends. I thank God for the life that He has allowed me to have in His grace. I thank God for these relationships and these possessions and and these priorities. But make no mistake, I look forward to my best life. When I'm no longer surrounded by sin and no longer struggling with internal sin myself. That best life comes when I'm with Jesus. That best life comes when I'm in heaven. And I remind you of that for this reason. If we're not careful, we can live as if this is all there is. And we can try to emphasize these sorts of principles in order to have the good life, in order to have what this author foolishly calls the best life. We need to understand that living in a fallen world, surrounded by it and contributing to it, the best we can have is a better life compared to the world. And it's infinitely better. But our best life is still to come. Now how can you know both the better life now and the best life in the future? It's through the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. It's through a relationship with Him and then living, living the principles that we've talked about. How do I establish that relationship with Him? Realize who I am. I'm a sinner. Recognize who Jesus is. God, having come as man, died on the cross to pay your penalty and my penalty in full. Repent of your sin. Lord, I'm going to go your way, the way of wisdom, not the way that seems right to a man. And receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow. When we do, I encourage you to pray and receive Jesus Christ as Savior. Bow before Him as your Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to be reminded of your wisdom contrasted with the wisdom of the world. And Lord, it pops and it dazzles and it allures us and our hearts are easily drawn away from the true and living God and the wisdom that is in Christ. Oh Lord God, forgive us and help us to see that the earlier the better. May our young people, but may all of us see that your way is best. And may we stop using worldly 
influences and worldly wisdom to justify what we do. May we fixate ourselves upon the wisdom contained in your word. So that we can be a light in darkness. So that we can show this peace and authenticity and commitment in our relationships. So that we can show that we are not possessed by possessions. But we're possessed by the God who owns everything. When people see that and they see the integrity of our lives, then we will truly be a light in darkness. We will truly live the better life, looking forward all the while to the best life that is yet to come with you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.